0: June the 30th. It's a Thursday. The year of our Lord 2022 just continues to roll along. Got a whole lot of stuff to do today, and we're excited to do it. Thank you so much for joining us on Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Really appreciate you giving us the most precious thing you have your time as we go through uh, the process of trying to turn down the noise of the news cycle just a little bit get to some really good information we need because it's been really noisy out there the last few days. Been tough. I'll be honest. I've skewed a lot of politics on my social media. Uh, Spent all day yesterday doing a family thing with one of my daughters. Just kind of unplugged. Did some music stuff. Not really a lot of politics. I'd encourage all of you to do the same. Doesn't mean you're not still in the fight. Doesn't mean you're still not after the issues that matter, but you got to do a little self-care out there too, folks. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. And each other. On today's program, we're going to span the world and we're going to talk domestic stuff. We're going to be overseas some. We're going to go over to the Philippines. Uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Bongbong Marcos Jr., has now taken power in the Philippines. What's the legacy of his dictator father? How he used misinformation to whitewash that legacy on his rise to power. We're going to go over to the Philippines, check in on a situation that's going to bear very close watching uh, going forward. Also, remember the Flint water. Situation. Uh, a court, the court in Michigan has struck down the indictment process as the way they indicted former Governor Snyder and others was completely wrong. It was a 6 0 ruling, it was a unanimous ruling that the Attorney General had exceeded their power. We'll go to Flint and talk about that situation in just a little bit. Uh, on the program today, Uh, Travis Nix returns, great Young Voices contributor, smart guy. Going to talk some tax policy, something people haven't talked about much lately. Used to be we talked about tax policy all the time. Why don't we talk about it more often? It's foundational to our government for a lot of reasons. Travis Nix joins He has a piece out in the Wall Street Journal about how the same old rhetoric about taxing the rich is not a tax policy. That's just buzzwords. We need to do better on that. Can't wait to talk to our friend Travis returning to the program today. Also in our final segment, going to talk about a charity that deals with foster care because the transition from being a foster care kid to being a foster care adult moving out into the world can be very difficult we'll touch in on that in just a little bit but first we're going to talk um about the passing of a legend woody williams has died now if you don't know who woody williams is he was the last living medal of honor recipient for world war ii now for years he was the last living marine recipient from world war ii but he lives long enough that he was just the last medal of honor recipient from world war ii outright people talk about great Americans and living legends and things like that. Woody Williams was all those things for a lot of reasons. This is a young man who went from a dairy farm in West Virginia to attending presidential inaugurations and having that kind of a national platform. But the amazing thing about Woody Williams was not just what he did to get the Medal of Honor. We'll touch on that in just a minute. It's that he spent the majority of his life fighting for veterans and veteran causes long before Most people knew what PTSD is. Long before people knew about the problems in the veteran affairs system, Woody Williams dedicated himself to working on that, fighting for it. The reasons he did so was very personal, not only for his own traumatic experiences, which he was very open about talking about on Iwo Jima uh, in combat, that he was awarded the nation's highest honor. It's personal to him. His brother... Uh, served in the army. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. He was grievously wounded in that battle, came home broken in mind and in spirit and died a few short years later as a result of it. That experience uh, with Woody Williams of watching what his brother and so many of his brethren from World War II went through uh, shook him to his core and gave him a purpose for the rest of his life. I want you to listen to this quote from him. He said, quote, I never, this is Woody Williams, I never seen a record, and I'm not sure there is one, of how many suicides we had after World War II, but those individuals had no place to go, no one to talk to, and no hope. Woody Williams worked as a counselor and an advocate in the VA system officially for over 30 years. Um, It's amazing to him and to us that he went from that dairy farm in West Virginia to when he passed away. He was laying in the Veterans Hospital in the state of West Virginia that now bore his name. It was the Woody Williams Hospital that he passed away in, one of the many honors he had received in his long life. There's also a United States Naval uh, transport ship named after him. One of the major uh, National Guard armories and reserve centers in West Virginia that was consolidated is the Woody Williams Armed Forces Reserve Center. He particularly loved that one because as an old Marine, he loved to give the Army a hard time, and having an Army facility named after a Marine brought him great joys and chuckles, and it was one of his opening jokes at his many, many public public appearances over the years. Woody Williams was very affable. You can watch all kinds of YouTube clips. He loved being around troops. He loved being around veterans. He loved being around active-duty people. He loved people and spent a lifetime serving them. Not bad for somebody that the Marine Corps didn't want, when he turned 18, he was anxious to join the military, but they rejected him. They thought the five foot six hillbilly was unfit for service. He wouldn't be tough enough. Little did they know. Over four hours on Iwo Jima, according to his Medal of Honor certification, he fought the Japanese. He did so with a flamethrower on his back. He's walking into combat with a ferocious and determined enemy at his front trying to kill him with flammable liquid strapped to his back. He went back multiple times to get other flamethrowers. He mounted pillboxes and at point-blank range would stick the nozzles in the air vents, uh, killing the Japanese enemies that was entrenched and killing his fellow Marines. In fact, two of the four Marines that were tasked with escorting and watching his back died in the same action that he was decorated for. He never forgot that. Every time he brings up the Medal of Honor, uh, he always mentions those two other Marines. And he said this. I want you to listen to this quote as well. I no longer just represent me. I now represent the Marines who protected me, Marines who sacrificed their lives doing that. If I had written the recommendation for the Medal of Honor, which I did and my commanding officer did, I would have never used the word alone. I sort of resent that that word's in there. Um, He said over and over again, he went for it alone, and that's not correct. Four Marines were protecting me, and two of them were killed doing it. I have said from the very beginning, that it does not belong to me, meaning the Medal of Honor. It belongs to them. Luckily, Woody Williams belonged to America. He loved his country. He served it very well. And now our country mourns the loss of one of the great Americans of the World War II generation, not just for what he did in combat, which made him a legend, even among the holiday annuals of the United States Marine Corps. But the way he conducted himself since long before anybody was talking about PTSD, Woody Williams was. Long before many people realized the VA system needed reform and funding and a change of attitudes and the way they dealt with the veterans, Woody Williams was working on that. He did it for most of his 98 years of life. It's sad that the World War II generation is passing away very quickly before our eyes. Woody Williams was the last of the Medal of Honor recipients for a reason. Almost all of them, meaning the World War II vets, are on the other side of glory now. And now Woody Williams has joined them. But as I'm working on a piece to memorialize him, I thought about it this way. There's an old line that Patton said about it was foolish to mourn the, dead, the war dead that we had. Just thank God that such men lived. We should take an example from Woody Williams, who never did anything alone, made sure the vets knew they were never alone, and now in death, is right back where he always wanted to be and was most comfortable among his peers, among the troops, among the Marines, among the veterans that have gone before because they're almost all there now from World War II. And we should be thankful that such men lived. God bless you, Woody Williams. Godspeed, sir. More hotel right after this. let's go overseas the philippines um marcos jr Ferdinand marcos jr bong bong <laughs> marcos as he's being called uh is now the president of the philippines now his father was the dictator of the philippines uh famously so how did these two things happen let's go to al jazeera he talks about how the process of this worked um marcos jr the uh nicknamed bong bong The 64-year-old son and namesake of the late Philippine leader Ferdinand Marcos won the presidency on the back of what historians and analysts like Guillago said was a years-long, well-organized campaign that sought to whitewash his father's brutal legacy. The late Marcos, who ruled the Philippines from 1965 to 1986, had declared martial law in 1972. And Amnesty International said it is documented that over 3,000 political killings occurred during this time. Some 70,000 people were also incarcerated and thousands more tortured. The Philippine Supreme Court, meanwhile, found that the Marcos family plundered at least $658 million from state coffers as the country's debt mounted and the millions of Filipinos lived in extreme public anger at the Marcos abuses and corruptions, coalesced in a People's Power Uprising 1986, during which the president was toppled and forced to flee to Hawaii, where he died three years later. And despite the historical record, Marcos Jr., who will take office on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Martial Law, isn't that special Has used social media to rewrite history, downplay the martial law era atrocity and portrays his father's tenure as quote, a golden age for the Philippines. In an online interview earlier this year, Marcos junior said his father ushered the Philippines into the modern world. And the day after the election, he visited his father's grave and released a statement calling the late president, his inspiration, who taught him the values and meaning of true leadership. Oh God, this isn't going to go well, uh, back to Al Jazeera, um, these posts included a video, uh, which claimed that nobody this is talking about the Difficult information campaign. That nobody was arrested during the martial law period, which is a blatant lie. Accumulated more than 187 million views by the state official election period, February 8th. Another post that claimed millions of martial law fabrication accounts of human rights abuses to extort reparations from the state was posted in 514 Facebook groups and viewed by more than 89 million times. Combined fight checkers are no match for the systematic networks of information operators behind the martial law disinformation, uh, said um, Diosa Labista, professor of University of Philippines College of Mass Communication. We are only fact-checked the last six months, and we're up against a tsunami of disinformation. The sharing suggests behavior is coordinated by repeat spreaders or established channels of influence, uh, while they describe a well-oiled machine has been years in the making. The Marcos Jr. campaign has utilized Facebook and YouTube channels and Facebook groups, TikTok videos, and other social media to reach out to Filipino voters, most of whom the Internet, to get their political views. A whistleblower at British data athletic firms, Cambridge Analytica, which assisted the presidential command of former U.S. President Donald Trump, infamously, also said Marcos Jr. sought help to rebrand the family's image in 2016, a claim that Marcos denied. His revisionist campaign, however, received a boost from the Philippine government the same year when outgoing President Rodrigo Duterte decided to give his father a hero's burial. At the time, um, which has been an advisory role to the president, why Ferdinand Marcus should not be buried at the at the cemetery of heroes. I'm not going to try that in the tagalog. Forgive me. Um, But the public outrage was ignored. Um, The hero's barrel for Marcos resulted in an explosion of disinformation that culminated in Marcos Jr.'s election victory. His family's reputation, previously known as corrupt, greedy, and abusive, that's all in quotes, was, quote, recalibrated into something fun and contemporary. Even the idea of Marcosian opulence, their YouTube channels showing the family making light of it as if they were just like us. It goes on to talk about historical amnesia, something to keep an eye on in the Philippines as the son of the former dictator takes power now of course the son sins of the father do not automatically go to the son but sure looks like they should in this case something to keep an eye on over in the philippines going forward more hotel right after this I heard tell show he's back. It's been a few minutes, but we love having him real sharp guy here Uh, goes to Georgetown law working on Juris Doctor because he's all smart and stuff. But we always enjoy having him on the program. Travis Nix from Young Voices. Welcome back, buddy. Good to see you.
1: Good to see you. Thanks for having me back.
0: Yeah, we uh, we were going to talk to him a couple months ago, but uh, Jay uh, retired from Villanova and we knew he was sad. We needed to give him a little bit of time because of Villanova fan, but that's okay, buddy. Uh, Have you recovered and are you doing well, sir?
1: Uh, yeah, if that was a rough one, but I have recovered. Kyle Neptune's a great basketball coach. Um, and, yeah, ready to talk some taxes with you.
0: Yeah, I miss the old Big East, dude. Of course, I'm a West Virginia guy. Uh, I miss the old Big East. Those were fun fun times. But Villano- I think Villanova will be just fine uh, going forward. Okay, let's talk a little taxes, though. Um, you got a story in the Wall Street Journal. Congratulations. That's a good job. But... <sighs> Let's start big picture and then we'll, we'll come back down. Why is it, and I know it's partly human nature, I know it's partly politics, I know a lot of it's probably just rhetorical laziness because you just kind of get in ruts and say things. What is it with tax the rich that we just go to over and over and over again policy-wise? Both parties do it. Uh, the left's probably a little bit more guilty than the right, but the populist right has kind of gotten on this thing too now. Why does folks go to that tax the rich button every time they want to do a kind of what we call a cheap pop when it comes to policy discussions about taxes?
1: I think one of the main reasons that we see this happen is our tax code is just so complex. A lot of people don't know what wealthy people actually pay in taxes, for example, because um, we have withholdings of people's salaries from people's paychecks. Nobody really knows what people pay in taxes because the government just takes the money straight out of it. So um, we just have a very complex tax code and people just don't understand, especially with corporations, all the good that corporations do in terms of making investments, investing in research, all these investments that over time grow the economy, put uh, more money in people's paychecks by making workers more productive. All of these are activities people, businesses can write off of their taxes and that's good. And that lowers like businesses pay in taxes. It's not cheating, but it's just that people, a lot of people just don't understand um, that most write-offs that people do that lowers their tax burden. It's actually good for society, especially on the business side.
0: Now, one of the examples of that that we hear all the time is they'll pick such and such rich person or such and such uh, major company and go, well, they didn't pay any state taxes. or They, they didn't pay any income taxes. Um, just kind of break it down because we always want to turn down the noise on things. Yeah, that's technically true, but it's more complicated that especially if you have a, a national or especially an international company, they pay a lot of different kinds of taxes. So yeah, you can say, well, they don't pay this one kind of tax. They probably are paying that somewhere else. Just walk us through that because that's kind of the soundbite that people will jump all over when we have this debate, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so I'll start with like corporate executives. A lot of times they go, oh, Jeff Bezos isn't paying anything in taxes. Well, that's because he's compensated in stock and you're not taxed on your stock until you sell it. So as as long as he's getting Amazon stock or stock of whatever company, he's not taxed on it until he sells it. That doesn't mean he's also paying, his company pays a lot in payroll taxes. They pay a lot in state corporate taxes. Some some years they pay federal corporate taxes. And if you want to, let's say, tax stock as soon as Jeff Bezos gets the stock, that would have disastrous economic effects because it would prevent or it would discourage people from investing in startups, investing in all types of companies that eventually hopefully grow and produce a lot of good paying American jobs.
0: Yeah, Travis, next joining us. The other side of this, just to play devil's advocate for a second, and I'm sympathetic to this view, too, is part of that complicated tax code that you're just talking about, though, is that does make enforcement hard, number one. And number two is it makes it hard to explain it and makes it look uneven, even when it's working correctly. So folks do have a legitimate gripe here of going, well, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't look fair on paper. Isn't part of this, too, is the tax code is so complicated that it's hard to enforce And the average person just doesn't understand how it's enforced. That's an accountability issue. That's also part of the policy discussion we ought to be having, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think one of the major goals that politicians from all sides of the aisle should be having is how to simplify the tax code, which will then increase economic growth, if you do it correctly, by eliminating distortions, getting rid of favors that certain businesses have over over others, that... um, that helps the economy and will increase economic growth and also help um, the IRS hopefully get some more, collect more revenue and go after the few people and companies that do cheat on their taxes.
0: Yeah, Travis next joining us. Okay, let's talk about the current president, President Biden. There, There's two basic ways to affect tax policy, legislatively and regulatory. Uh, legislatively, we understand it's a midterm year, there's a lot of big ticket items going on, we've got guns, we have the abortion debate, we've got um we're going to have a uh, government shutdown theater again this fall that stuff's over there's probably not going to be any tax legislation this year at least with this congress so that's off the table so walk us through it slowly because the other part that folks don't understand is how much regulatory can be done with taxes you're talking about this section 901 change that president biden and his treasury department has pushed through just kind of slow walk us through it because regulatory tax changes are more immediate other than court challenges and things like that. And people don't really pay as much attention to them as due to like Trump's tax cuts, like, you know, the stuff with the Clinton era, just kind of walk us through the difference between those two things. And then why you got into this section 901 thing. Yes.
1: Yeah, so in terms of regulatory tax policy, Congress, they're not tax experts The tax experts are in the treasury and IRS. So what oftentimes Congress do, does is they legislate in very vague, broad terms and they go, I want our international tax system to look like um, this. And one portion of our international tax system is we have foreign tax credits, which companies, um, when uh, US shareholders of foreign companies, um, when the foreign corporation pays tax in whatever jurisdiction they're operating in, then the U.S. shareholder, when they have to report their foreign corporations income on their taxes, they get a dollar for dollar credit for um, the tax that was already paid. So that way corporations aren't double taxed that allows um, income and revenue to move freely across borders, which is generally good and productive for the economy. And what the Biden administration did was they narrowed these foreign tax credits. They basically said that foreign tax credits, it's only available to corporations, uh, foreign corporations that have a tax treaty with the U.S. And that excludes a large portion of Latin America, many Latin American countries, including Brazil, Argentina, Chile, do not have foreign uh, tax treaty with the U.S. And the the U.S. basically said, or the Biden administration basically Treasury put into change the regulation and said that there the foreign uh, country's tax system has to have many attributes as the US tax system. Um, this includes provisions like interest deductibility. So if a corporation has debt, or they finance investments through debt, they have to be able to write off the interest of their debt. So that's a big issue, for example, in Hong Kong right now. Hong Kong does not allow interest deductibility for foreign corporations, so that would possibly limit these foreign tax credit um, from U.S. Uh, companies operating in Hong Kong, and therefore they would then be double-taxed and not be able to invest as much in Hong Kong and possibly lose their headquarters over there.
0: Now, um, uh, Travis next joining us, Young Voices contributor, smart fellow, glad to have him back. We're talking tax policy. There's one thing in here that caught my attention and you touch in on on your piece, but I don't understand this the way you do. So just explain it to me like I'm five for a second. It seems to me that maybe there's a little bit of a failure in how this uh, regulatory policy was written. And you touched on it in your piece because it talks about income taxes in other countries. Income tax is kind of, it's not unique to America, but the way we do it is pretty unique in the world. Most of the world doesn't do it that way. Of course, they have different social systems, they have VAT taxes, they have things like this, especially in places like Europe and South America. Isn't that kind of a bad way to view the taxes of the world? Because one is, when you're talking tax policy, it's like other policy like guns or something like that, the specific wording really, really matters. And saying income tax, and you touch on it in your piece, that's probably not the best way to go at, even if you agree with what they're trying to do, because that's kind of an American concept that you're placing on foreign countries that don't do it that way. Uh, is, am I way off base at Because it just seems odd to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, these regulations, they were very hastily proposed and very hastily created. And there's definitely a lot of vague and poor wording on it that just does not address everything. Um for example, as like we were talking about, um, one of the big in international income tax, there's a big principle of if you're moving money or doing a deal with one of your subsidiaries, you have to basically deal with your subsidiary like it's a third party. It's called the arm links principle. And in the regs um, for this income tax definition, it's basically said that you have to basically include this language of arm length principle in the regulations. Now, Brazil, they don't have that. It doesn't explicitly say arm's length principle, but they basically operate that way. Their tax system is very, has moved in recent years very closely towards that. So right now they're getting penalized in Brazil and any U.S. company that operates in Brazil is potentially penalized and will be double taxed just because Brazil's tax code does not specifically say that. Even though that they they are essentially following it, so that's a that's an example of just poor definitions and not really understanding how the rest how certain countries operate and the terminology that they use.
0: Yeah, Travis, thanks joining us. Um, you use Brazil as an example here. Brazil is an interesting case study. You know. Ten years ago, they were kind of the poster child. A lot of people were talking about, you know, countries on the up. They've had a lot of economic turmoil since then. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. use them as a little bit of an example, though, because they're they, we can extrapolate that out to other countries. When we're dealing with a country like Brazil that is a very big dynamic economy, but it's having a little bit of trouble in recent years. How would this kind of a tax policy affect them and how would it affect us? And how does it also affect us politically when we try to exert influence with something like the current administration there that's been, you know, a little bit off the rails on certain things that matter to Americans?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the biggest ways that the U.S. should try to influence the world is filtering economically. So we need businesses operating in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile, our closest neighbors down in South America, countries where China is investing billions and almost trillions of dollars a year, a year and over a decade in China's influence has grown strongly in South America. And we should definitely be very concerned about that in terms of how it affects the U.S. Um, so when a company double taxed um, because of the elimination of a foreign tax credit, it basically has two choices. one it can stop operating in that country, close all of its foreign subsidiaries, divest, sell them off, the potentially Chinese companies, potentially European companies, um, who they have better tax laws and would allow um, a foreign tax credit without double taxation. Um, and that, that would obviously lessen American influence in South America and increase China's probably. Um, or um, the company can, um, basically move their headquarters from the U.S. to a different foreign country. It could be even like the Cayman Islands, a very a tax haven essentially, where then double taxation is not an issue at all because you don't pay um, income tax. And that's obviously bad for the U.S. worker because it would uh, decrease the amount of jobs available in the U.S. and potentially lower wages, stop that free flow of capital and money across borders. Which would depress the world economic growth over time a little bit, including the US economy. So we would just not grow as fast and we would lose influence uh, within the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, Travis Nix joining us. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue to talk tax policy, uh, tax the rich, both the rhetoric and the policy. More with Travis Nix on her tell right after this quick break. back to our Hurt Tell. All right, we're with Travis Nix. We're talking a little tax policy. He's got a great piece out in Wall Street Journal. It is linked in the show notes. Make sure you read it in its entirety. Um, I like to take something complicated and try to break it down to something simple. So tax the rich sounds good. Evil corporations, that sounds good. Um, Bezos has enough money to give X amount of money to everybody in the world, and he can still uh, be the richest man in the world. I heard that about Bill Gates. I heard about Carlos Slim. That's not a new joke. It's just he's the new guy. Here's my thing when you start explaining this as double taxing even the average person can understand well wait a minute if you're getting double taxed that doesn't sound fair is some of this just a rhetoric and nomenclature problem where we we house it one way of you know rich corporations millions and millions of dollars instead of saying Well, wait. Double taxing something is pretty much always wrong. Like that's just that just doesn't sound right, no matter who you are, and you don't have to know economic policy. Should we be changing our nomenclature and our rhetoric a little bit on some of these things because that makes more sense to me than you know all the policy stuff in the world? Maybe it would other people as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, rhetoric has a huge place in tax policy in defeating bad ideas. Frank once famously um, coined the term "death tax" for the estate tax. And the number of states with a death or estate tax has decreased significantly um, over the over the past decade. Because in decades, because when people hear the word death tax, they think tax when you die. That's unfair. Um, and the estate tax is very economically harmful for family farms and um, fam- familial wealth. Um, and so, like that's why where rhetoric has a very important role in tax. Um, Republicans should get better at using very good rhetorical tools like du- like double tax, like I'm saying, um, to defeat bad tax policy ideas. But unfortunately, a lot of the smart tax people that are in this world, and there's a lot of them, um, they get very technical when they talk about taxes and they just kind of forget how to describe it to the average person and do it in a way that understands how harmful some of these ideas are.
0: Well, let's 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 flesh that out for a second, because we talk about things like deficits. We talk about wasteful government spending. We talk about, you know, uh, unaccountability in government spending and in government in general. And we can you know pound that pulpit all day. Talk just big picture for a second, though, because if you're going to do proper budgeting, if you're going to have a fiscally responsible government, all of that is foundationally relying on the tax code because that's the government's primary income. Just kind of walk folks through, because I think sometimes we we forget the basics of economics and the basics of government. Just walk people through, like the tax code is not just foundational for income. It's foundational for how the entire government works. And if you care about functional, efficient government, you've got to have a tax code that works and you've got to have it enforceable and you got to have everybody on the same page as to what it is, right?
1: Yeah, so foundational principle, taxes and spending should be related. Unfortunately, the federal government every year moves farther and farther away from that. But the idea is um, when you budget at the beginning of the year, you need to be able to predict accurately and forecast how much revenue you are going to take in. And that requires a stable tax code, a stable tax code that doesn't change that often that you're able to predict. Um, In the Biden, this uh, double tax um, foreign tax credit proposal, it moves us completely away from that because now corporations, they're talking about you know moving overseas, divesting of uh, foreign investments. Um, they're meeting with the treasury and they are very worried about how these regulations are going to affect them. And depending on what they ultimately decide, that lowers the tax revenue that's coming in from um, their shareholders, from their corporation. And that makes it harder to forecast for budgeting and then makes it, uh, just um, completely disassociate spending and, and tax revenue completely and we get farther and farther from the ideal system.
0: Talk about the sponge principle for a minute because, and there's different words for this in tax policy, but uh, the way it was explained to me when I was a kid was it's the sponge principle is like, look, when you go to crack down on companies when it comes to taxes, you're only going to squeeze it so much and eventually that's just going to run out everywhere and you're not actually collecting it and cleaning it anymore. It's just going everywhere. These companies have fleets of lawyers. They know this stuff. They can go overseas. They can move. They can do tax havens. They can change countries. We see that going on with the EU Brexit thing right now. Um, talk about that is like there is a limit to this stuff. So people can say tax the rich, but there that's a two way street because the rich have to, you know, especially the rich that have means they have to consent to the taxes or they'll just move somewhere else. There is a fairness two way street policy here that doesn't get talked about a lot, isn't there?
1: Yeah. I mean, these companies, um, their executives are highly mobile. They can, if they believe that they're being unfairly targeted by the administration, and I think this is a clear example of um, corporations or foreign subsidiaries operating in Latin America, they're being put at a huge disadvantage here because they're being double taxed. But if you just operate in Europe, you're not um, double taxed um, because uh, they have a tax fee. And so they, they feel like they're being very treated unfairly and they might just move um, and go to a tax haven or something like that. They have the means to be able to do that. And that's something that the administration has to remember and basically not unfairly target certain companies for operating in certain countries that just don't do their tax system the way we want them to do.
0: Yeah. Travis, next joining us. All right. We've been beating up on the Biden administration here, but uh, let's be fair here. The Republican Party and the wider right, frankly, I just haven't heard them talk a lot about tax policy lately. Now, we'll still get lip service about, you know, tax cuts or cutting the rich, cutting taxes, that sort of thing. I just don't hear a lot about it. I know we have a lot of cultural issues going on. I know there's, you know, political upheaval on other fronts right now they used to be just bread and butter stuff for the right to talk about tax policy. I just don't hear it that much anymore. Do you hear the same thing? Do you find that frustrating?
1: Yeah, I think it's very frustrating with the new populist right and the cultural war that they seem to be wanting to wage with the Democrats. They think that that's what it helped them politically. And they just ignore um, these important tax issues. And then what, what do we see people voting on right now? They're worried about rising inflation and an economy that seems to be moving closer to a recession every single day. Tax policy is a tool that we can use to get us out of that, put more money in people's products, pockets um, and boost the economy. And they just don't feel they're not willing to fight that fight right now. And that's a shame, especially that the tax cuts that everyone talked about, they're going to expire at the end of 2025. So whoever wins the midterms this cycle and eventually the White House in 2024, they'll decide what our nation's tax code will look like. Um, and they should be drumming that issue and beating that drum and they just aren't. And that has wide consequences because the American people don't understand how much their taxes will be um, could be raised in 2025 if we don't have politicians who are willing to fight for lower taxes.
0: More importantly, since we can't get them focused on that, is there the way to deal with the regulatory state is through legislation. I really don't see any appetite for that whatsoever. And like you said, there's some time bombs going off. The taxation time bomb is 2025. We know Social Security, it's 2026. We've got some really heavy legislative issues coming up. And the way our system's set up, we should go through the legislative process to deal with regulation. We're not. This program from Biden, and I'm not picking on him because Trump did it too, Bush did it too, Obama did it too, presidents are going more and more to the regulatory agencies to push this stuff through, and it's just piling up, piling up, piling up. I, How would you throw the pitch of like, hey, the legislative process has to take back control of these policy issues, even though they're not real sexy, they're not getting, you know, clicks, they're not getting hits, they're not getting fundraising. This is just how basic government has to function. And it's not. And there's people like you, you just mentioned 2025. There's a cliff coming and nobody seems to really care right at the moment. And that's very frustrating and kind of alarming to me.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the legislator seems they they like agencies to be able to let legislate on these big issues that really only corporate executives care about. So that means they can just point fingers at the agency when these corporate executives and co- big companies get mad and say, "Oh, it's not my fault; it's their fault." So go like go yell at them, um, and that's just not how government's supposed to work. Um, we have some big Supreme Court decisions possibly going to be released um, soon on the regu- regulatory state that could um, s- start to limit some of their power. And I think any regulatory reform, and unfortunately, bluntly, it's not going to come from Congress. It's going to be come from um, lawsuits that work their way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court finally says that they've had enough and want to... Um, really uh, eliminates a lot of the regulatory state's power to legislate because this is Congress's job, and Congress should be the one doing it.
0: Yeah, that's all we need to help out the IRS, more lawyers involved, right? Um, Travis, next, great piece in the Wall Street Journal. Make sure you go read it. We have a link in the show notes, as always. Read the whole piece. Uh, We're going to have you back again because you're always sharp and we always enjoy you. Until we get you back on the program, though, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, and what else you got going on when you're not busy worrying about Villanova basketball.
1: Yeah, the easiest way to follow me is uh, at next 113 um, I post all my pieces there that I write, and you can follow me for tax takes, sports takes, whatever you want.
0: <laughs> he also has a piece out about uh, the Shapiro tax plan in Pennsylvania. Election year, good thing to check out on that. Uh, Travis Nix, you do great work, sir. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for coming back on the show and talking with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. I always love being on.
0: Yes, sir. Appreciate you. Back to her tell. Hey, remember the Flint water crisis uh, all over the news, of course. Terrible situation. Well, uh, back a while back, there was actual uh, indictments. Um, there was charges brought against former uh, Governor Rick Snyder and other officials in the Flint water scandal. This news is broken uh, from ABC News uh, out of Detroit The Michigan Supreme Court on Tuesday threw out charges against former Governor Rick Snyder and the others in the Flint water scandal, saying a judge sitting as a one-person grand jury had no power to issue those indictments under rarely used state laws. It's an astonishing defeat for Attorney General Dana Nessel, who took office in 2019, got rid of a special prosecutor, and put together a new team to investigate whether the crimes were committed when lead contaminated Flint's water system in 2014-2015. State laws, quote, authorize a judge to investigate subpoena witnesses and issue arrest warrants. That's a direct quote. As a grand juror, the Supreme Court said, quote, but they do not authorize the judge to issue indictments, the court said, in a 6-0 opinion written by Chief Justice Bridget McCormick. She called it a Star Chamber comeback, a pejorative to the reference to an oppressive closed-door style of justice in England in the 17th century. The challenge was filed by lawyers for former health director Nick Lyon, but the decision also applies to Snyder and the others. The case is now returned to Genesee County, with requests for dismissal. This was not even close. It was six zip. They couldn't do what they tried to do, said Lyon attorney Chip Chamberlain. Snyder's legal team described the court's opinion as unequivocally and scathing. Uh, the saga in Flint began in 2014 when Flint managers appointed by Snyder dropped out of the regional water system and began using the Flint river to save money while a new pipeline at Lake Huron was under construction. State regulators insisted the river water did not need to be treated to reduce its corrosive qualities, but that was a ruinous decision. Lead released from old pipes flowed for more than 18 months in the majority black city. The Michigan civil rights commission said it was the result of systematic racism, doubting that the water switch and the brush off would have occurred in a white prosperous community. Snyder a Republican has long acknowledged that his administration failed in Flint calling the crisis, Born from a quote breakdown in state government. He was out of office in 2021 when he was charged with two misdemeanor counts of willful neglect of duty. Lyon and Michigan's former chief medical executive, Dr. Eden Wells, were charged with involuntary manslaughter for nine deaths related to Legionnaires disease when Flint's water might have lacked enough chlorine to combat bacteria. Six others were also indicted. Snyder's longtime fixer, Rich Byrd, former senior aide Jared Ogin, former Flint manager's. Gerald Ambrose, and Dan-, Dan Darnell Early, former Flint Public Works Commissioner Howard Croft, and Nancy Peeler, a state health department manager. Nissel assigned Heyman to lead the criminal investigation along with Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy, while the Attorney General focused on settling the lawsuits against the state. Um, down at the bottom of this piece it is noted. Um, separately, the state agreed to pay $600 million as part of a $626 million settlement with Flint Residents and property owners who were harmed by lead tainted water, most of the money is going to children's charities. There is no dispute that lead affects the brains and nervous system, especially in children. Experts have not identified a safe lead level in kids. Flint in 2015 returned to a water system based in southeast Michigan. Meanwhile, roughly 10,100 letter steel water pipes have been replaced at homes by last December. Um, update on the Flint story. You can read the entire piece at ABC News. We will link to it. Uh, awful situation but you still got to work within the confines of the law and it sure looks like uh this attorney general went well beyond that in this case more hotel right after this Welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's finish on a good note, like we always try to do, talk a little charity. Uh, CBS 17, this is out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, They do a thing called the Guarantee Charity for each month. The month of June is the Hope Center. Uh, Reading from CBS17.com. This will be linked, by the way, if you're interested in this charity. The struggles of the pandemic, gas prices, housing, and inflation are hard enough for most people, but imagine having to add to the mix being a foster kid. Becoming an adult and trying to navigate our current world on your own sounds tough, right? Well, luckily, the Hope Center at Poland was created to empower adults who are transitioning out of foster care in Wake County with the support and connections needed for a safe and stable adulthood. Foster youth usually have a traumatic experience before entering foster care, and the process of entering foster care can also be difficult. When young adults come out of the foster care system, it doesn't get any easier. Finding and maintaining stable housing or work, getting an education, maintaining good mental health, and budgeting for the future face all adults. Across the country, 50% of former foster youth will be unemployed by the age of 24. One in four will experience homelessness within four years of leaving foster care. Nearly 23% will never complete high school or a GED by the age of 21. Hope Center in Poland helps youth with the transition from foster care to independence. As an adult, they serve more than 150 foster teens annually In Wake County, North Carolina, programs begin during their teenage years with tutoring, internships, and life skills programs continue as the kids age out. Um, Great charity. CBS 17 also will donate to this. If you're interested in this charity and other things, you can look it up in the show notes. We have the links. Foster care is a messy system in America. We've talked about it in other respects on the program before. I suspect we will continue to talk about it in many places, places like my native West Virginia, where it's a total train wreck very good on these programs try to transfer these folks that have uh disadvantages in life for various reasons trying to make them into fully functional adults and citizens and good on them for doing that that'll do it for her tell busy day uh we'll be back tomorrow on friday finish this week out it's been a good week uh we're going to finish strong already have a lot of stuff lined up for next week as well so continue to subscribe however you're watching uh on whatever platform you're watching whether it's the radio youtube podcasting. We sure appreciate you. Make sure you share us with your friends. It means a lot to us at Hertel at gmail.com. If you want to reach out, Hertel Show on the Twitter, we'd love to hear from you. And until we see you next time, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. well fed. Talk to you next time on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So much